You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The question I keep coming back to during this pandemic is, what happens next? Where is this all going? Fortunately, it's not really my job to figure that out. There are other folks at Vox.com that get to game that one out and suffer the consequences. I personally find this topic to just be like a mindfuck. Brian Resnick, senior science reporter at Vox.com. Like every epidemiologist I've spoken to recently, there's this like really interesting tension here where we can feel the future. We can we can understand the past this could take, and we understand the potential for bad things. But it's just so, so hard to predict the future. Today on the show, the possible futures of the pandemic and why they're so hard to predict. Also, we're going to give you a realistic range for when this whole thing could end. I'm Ariel Zumross. This is Reset. Brian Resnick, senior science reporter at Vox. There's a lot of uncertainty about how the future of the pandemic is going to play out. Um, But what do we know for sure? The one thing we know for sure, and that's always in my mind when I'm seeing stories about states opening up and people going out again, is that this virus still has such a high pandemic potential that just, like, hasn't been spent. Pandemic potential. What do you mean by that? So, like, I've been asking researchers a question along the lines of, what's really different now than, like, when we first went into lockdowns in March? Mm -hmm. And... The answer is, well, a few more people, relatively speaking, have been infected. But, you know, a lot of the conditions that were really scary then are still scary now. And this is a hard thing to think through. Like, we've seen an enormity of pain, of death, of horrible, horrible things. Like, this is already, in my mind, like, just one of the worst things to happen in modern history. But yet, so much more can happen. And that's like a really, at this point in time, like after we've seen so much, to just realize that nationally only a handful of percentage points of people in the United States have been infected by this and so, so many more could be in the future potentially. It's it's a really tough moment. So when the epidemiologists that you spoke to look into the future, what exactly are they thinking about? Yeah, so... Like, let's say this summer, it's not that bad. We've opened up. People are still behaving as though there's a pandemic going on. And and we generally keep social distancing up and we generally keep the pandemic from not destroying our healthcare system. You can imagine people becoming complacent and anxious to start, you know, life again. So you can imagine in the fall, there's all these calendar dates that 
could bring people together again. So schools in September can decide to open up. Shortly thereafter, you know, we have like Halloween, which, you know, brings a lot of, if you've ever been on a college campus then on Halloween, you know, you see people mingling together. Um, there's election day, there's Thanksgiving. These are all days on the calendar where people can start to really collect together again um, and increasingly indoors. And we know this is becoming like, we know this is a clear risk. Like this virus thrives indoors when people are like breathing the same air. Mm-hmm. We're breathing each other's breath. So like, you can just like look at the calendar and like, anticipate a potential situation where if there is still a huge susceptible population to get this infection, and then suddenly we release all the restrictions and we declare, you know, this is behind us, you know, the summer wasn't as bad as those nasty scientists were predicting and warned us about, then that's setting up a situation for just like a huge explosion in cases. Right. So people get to go outside right now. A lot of people have not been infected. And then in the winter, we get bored of this whole thing. The holidays are coming and then all of a sudden we're all squishing together, which makes us far more likely to become infected. And again, as we said, a lot of people have not been infected and so they were likely to get sick. Yeah. And I've had so many conversations with epidemiologists who, you know, they're worried about the fall. They're worried about those calendar dates and those family get-togethers, but they're also worried about the summer. They're worried about states opening up too quickly without adequate plans for testing and contact tracing in place. And, you know, we could see a big second wave this summer, too. Like, that's not out of the question. You know, there's just so many possible futures. And you don't have to, like, point to one over the other as being scary. Like, they're all scary. What are some of the other scenarios for how this pandemic could end up playing out? The first thing to know is that in all of these scenarios, the virus will likely remain around for years without a vaccine. Years? Years, yeah. But there are a few different paths. Like, what's going to happen over these next two years, you know, or, or more, you know, before there's a vaccine? Let's imagine three scenarios, and these are drawn from histories of flu pandemics. Um, the first is what we discussed, like a huge fall wave where, you know, you keep people safe during the summer and then you create the perfect conditions for this virus to just explode in the fall and winter. And then, you know, this virus has already seeded itself throughout the United States. So you have like all these like igniter fuses in all sorts of parts of the country. And it could just like, you know, a powder keg in the fall, you know, and we're the fuel. Another scenario is just like we just keep seeing peaks and valleys. It just hits different cities, it hits different regions at a time. And so the second scenario, it's a little chaotic. Okay, and so what's the third scenario? The third scenario is like a slow burn. It's just a plateau where we get to a place where cases, you know, they're not really destroying our healthcare system. They're not creating crises for um, different parts of our country, but it's just like not going away. There will be continued infections, continued deaths, and we manage it perhaps with contact tracing and testing, perhaps with like 
learning about more about how this virus is transmitted and avoiding the worst places for transmission. But even in the case where this is a slow burn, we're keeping it under control. We're, we're keeping it from igniting a huge powder keg. Like that pandemic potential is still there. It's still mm-hmm. going to find people. This virus is sneaky. It has a long incubation period. People can spread it without symptoms. Like the, the bottom line here of this scenario is like, we're going to need vigilance until there's a vaccine. We're going to need more than 50% of the population immune for there to be like a natural slowdown of this pandemic. Mm. So until then, like more infections are possible. You know, we're not going to get down to zero. The thing that has come out of this conversation with you, looking at these three scenarios, is that there's a lot of uncertainty still. Like, why is it that the future is still so uncertain? This is a part of the the tragedy of a pandemic of a novel pathogen. This is why scientists didn't want this to happen, because they are hard to predict. We don't know because so much of this depends on human behavior, which is just the hardest thing to track. It's the hardest thing to model, to predict. And then there's things about this virus, the biology of it, that we don't understand. We don't quite understand how long immunity lasts for. Like, there's just, yeah, the, all of these things just, like, generate this chaotic system. And what's not going to happen is this is not going to go away. What's the most optimistic future we can hope for? A vaccine, 100%, is the, like, is the absolute thing that would help us here if it's effective. But, you know, I, I'm going to give you one more pessimistic thing because you just have to face it. Only two diseases have ever been eradicated with vaccines. And you think of like all of the work that goes into to this day trying to eradicate polio. You know, this is so widespread already to think that this is just going to be like eradicated. Oh, we got a lot of work to do. I wish I could tell you, like, the final, like, oh, this is all going to be okay, but I don't... We'll find a way to live, I hope. I don't... It's just not going away. Brian Resnick is a senior science reporter at Vox.com. After the break, how far away is a vaccine? Really? This is Reset. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
there are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam, the soggy morning jog, the why is the dog taking so long just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high-quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. Herman Lopez, senior correspondent at Vox.com. In the first half of this episode, we talked about the possibility of waves of coronavirus outbreaks in the coming months because so few people have immunity to the disease. So how important will a vaccine be to stopping this pandemic? It's pretty much the only way that I can see us like guaranteeing a way out. The alternative to not having a vaccine or at least some sort of medical treatment that makes coronavirus much less deadly is we have to build up herd immunity naturally. And that would involve literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of deaths. We're talking about like 50 to 70, maybe more percent of the population having to become immune. I mean, right now in the U.S., we've maybe had, uh, depending on which numbers you look at, like less than 5% infected. We already have 90,000 deaths. So, I mean, you start blowing out those numbers, it's not good. We don't want to be hitting 70% natural herd immunity because that would mean literally millions of people dying potentially. So a vaccine is probably the best shot at getting out of this as safely as possible. So I keep hearing health officials and politicians talk about a 12 to 18 month timeline for coming up with a vaccine for this coronavirus. Is that a good timeline for how long it takes to develop a vaccine for for a virus like this? Not really, because it's just so ambitious. The record for vaccine development came from mumps, and that took about four years. Wow. We also developed an Ebola vaccine pretty quickly, but that's the record. Four years. Like If now we're talking about doing it in a year, a year and a half, that's something we just have not done before. All right. So basically what you're hearing is that this time span might be completely unrealistic. Yeah, I mean... There's like two camps here. So on on one side, we are throwing like all of human ingenuity into this, right? Like this is something that like major labs all over the world are really work on. Some of the best pharmaceutical companies, some of the best scientists, like everybody really wants to get this done. Nobody wants to stay in social distancing. So that's that's something we haven't done for a big medical treatment ever. Mm -hmm. So maybe who knows? Maybe we can pull it off. But on the other hand, yeah, it's just it would be the quickest time we've taken to develop a vaccine. And so it's it just depends on which end of the spectrum you fall on. I mean, how much you believe in human ingenuity versus just the realities of how long it's taken us to develop vaccines before. Do we know for sure that a vaccine is even possible? No, we don't know for sure. When you look at the statistics of what actually makes it through the full FDA process, like what medications and drugs make it through, 
less than 10% actually make it through the entire process. So it's possible that whenever you see like a promising development on the news of a vaccine or whatever, there's a nine in 10 chance that that'll fail. And we do have a coronavirus vaccine for cows, um, but it's a different kind of coronavirus, not the one that we're dealing with right now. So that shows that at least maybe some sort of vaccine for coronavirus is possible. But at the end of the day, it's a novel virus. It's a novel situation we're dealing with. And frankly, we just don't know if we're going to be able to develop a vaccine for it just yet. Just to be clear, did you say that we have a vaccine for a coronavirus for cows? Yeah, for cows. It's a, it's a different kind of coronavirus, so it's, it's not the same. But it at least shows that this family of viruses, maybe it's possible to develop a vaccine, at least among some mammals. Because I think one possible comparison here is to like HIV, right? We've Mm -hmm. wanted an HIV vaccine for decades and we've never been able to produce one. But it also turns out that HIV is like particularly slippery or it's an absolutely horrible virus in just about every way you can imagine. Um, So maybe at least coronavirus isn't quite that bad based on the fact we have a vaccine for some mammals for some kinds of coronavirus. All right. What about safety issues with these trials? Presumably, the idea is that clinical trials for this vaccine should go as fast as possible, which makes me wonder about safety. I've talked to a a lot of experts about this, and this has come up as like probably the biggest, most controversial point about it. So if we're talking about speeding up this vaccine process by years or months and like losing months or years of data that we would otherwise have, it's possible that we will see side effects that didn't show up before. So if you're if you're imagining you're testing a, a population of a few dozens, like phase one trials might, that's going to have a much less chance of showing up a rare side effect than like testing tens of thousands of people or administering the vaccine to m- hundreds of millions of people, right? Right. As we get to bigger populations, we're going to see more of these side effects. And as we go through more time, maybe some side effects will show up that just didn't show up early on as the body was taking in the vaccine and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's really the concern here is that it's possible that we get months down the line and some rare side effect pops up and it's pretty bad and, and we have to like learn how to deal with it or we have to develop yet another vaccine or, or something along those lines. And it's important to, to note here that vaccines are usually safe, but like one of the things that keeps us safe is these like regulations, these trials that make sure that they are safe for months or years on end. So if if we start cutting into that, we are potentially adding risk here. And it's important to emphasize as well that like, even if we're talking about a side effect that only affects like 1% or mm-hmm. 0.1% of the population, when we're talking about administering the vaccine to 300 million, 7 billion people, right. that's still a lot of people who would be affected by the side effect. One thing I've been thinking about is that even if we're able to develop a vaccine quickly, we'll still need a way to produce it at scale. Pretty much everyone on the planet that hasn't had this disease will need to get this shot, right? And maybe even some of them who have had it. So how long will it take to manufacture the vaccine? It's still an open question how long it will take to produce this. I mean, if you look at some of the data, getting vaccine manufacturing up and running can literally take years. And that might sound like ridiculous, like how hard is it to build a factory for this kind of thing? But wait, we have to build factories? Yeah, depending on what kind of vaccine we come out, like especially if it's a newer type of vaccine, a newer kind of technology, then we might not have the factories for this. I mean, for one, 
none of these pharmaceutical companies have the capacity right now to pump out a vaccine for 300 million people in a matter of months. And some of the researchers I've talked to have said it would be a miracle if we actually got this done. These factories have to be safe. Like, we don't want contamination in these factories that can Mm -hmm. lead to serious problems with a vaccine, like something we're injecting into our bodies. So it's it's not just a bureaucratic or labor-intensive process. There's, like, good reasons for why you might want to slow down and make sure that things are going correctly in this case. What I'm getting from you is that the vaccine manufacturing process is just as important and complicated as the development process. And that, I don't know, I I guess in some ways I'm sort of surprised that that people aren't talking about this more because it's sort of mind-blowing to think of the fact that we we don't even have the factories right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think one example here is like back in the 50s when we started putting out the polio vaccine, there actually were cases where some producers messed up and there was live polio in some of these vaccines. Mm. People got infected, people died. In fact, that's one of the reasons that we've massively stepped up regulation of vaccines to make sure that kind of thing doesn't happen again. Okay, But it, it speaks to the problems here. Just imagine a situation where even just one factory produces bad doses, like something goes wrong with, with these vaccines that are produced. People would then demand like, hey, we need to make sure that these other doses also didn't get contaminated by any other means. And like that would hold up the entire process again. It's interesting that you make that point, because as you've previously said, vaccines are extremely safe. But there are a lot of people out there who don't feel that way. And when you ask them why, they might come up with some conspiracy theory. But many of them point to things like what happened with that polio vaccine years and years ago. It's a it's a huge concern. I kind of put it in two different categories. One, there's the anti-vaxxer category where we're talking about like a group of people who they don't have any evidence for their beliefs, but they believe that vaccines are dangerous. They they support all sorts of uh, conspiracy theories. I don't want to repeat them, but I'm sure people have seen those out there in, in terms of like big government, world leaders, what pharmaceutical companies and all that want to do with vaccines. Right. So there's that one category. But then there is this other category where like, look, part of the reason that vaccines are so safe and effective today is because they have these regulations, because they have to go through this rigorous scientific process. I mean, even if there weren't government regulations, science often just takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And like, That's because scientists want to be careful. They want to validate their results. They want to make sure what they're doing will actually help people and will actually be effective. It's unreasonable to be concerned about vaccines we've had for decades, tested for a long period of time and shown their effectiveness. But like when we're talking about a fairly novel vaccine, I think it's it's all right to be a little concerned. And in fact, pretty much every expert I've talked to has said, like, yes, these safety concerns need to be taken seriously, not just to make sure the vaccine is safe, but to avoid a public health backlash from like anti-vaccine groups Mm -hmm. that creates much more harm than even the actual health effects of the side effects do. Right. I mean, I have actually interviewed quite a few anti-vaxxers and former anti-vaxxers previously. And um, I got to say, that is one of my big concerns. It is that even if we have a safe and effective vaccine down the line and it's ready to be administered, we've manufactured it, we made factories, you could still end up seeing, especially in the U.S., Um, a large population of folks who say, you know what, I'm not going to take it. 
And then the disease persists in a number of, of small pockets and communities, and it's, it, it ends up being still very hard to get rid of. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, these groups, these anti-vaccine groups have are pretty savvy and they've grown a lot uh, in, in certain pockets of like the Internet over the years. And they've done that even though the science isn't on their side. Now imagine a situation where they do have some reason to be skeptical, like they like they do have some evidence that maybe these vaccine trials were rushed. Add that to the mix. Like it's it's scary to think what could happen as a result. Yeah, absolutely. So setting anti-vaxxers aside for a second, what is a good estimate for how long getting a vaccine that is safe and effective and ready to, you know, inject into people? What's a realistic estimate for that? A realistic estimate? I don't think there really is a realistic. Like, I can't I can't give you a hard (laughs) number for it. What I Uh can say is the range is extremely wide. We're talking six months to 16 years. I'm sorry. Did you just say 16 years? That's the the long end of how long a vaccine could take. It would be very hard. I'm having uncontrollable laughter. This is <laughs> this is literally un- extremely unplanned. <laughs> this is absolutely terrible. Yeah, I mean, it, there's there's really no n- no good news here. I, I, I like honestly, like because. Even the, the prospects of a vaccine taking another six months, I mean, that's still pretty long. Like, are, are we, like we're already seeing signs of like social distancing breaking after two months. It's just going another six months. So, yeah, I mean, the, I think the other hope here is we get some other medical treatment that at least makes coronavirus much less deadly or much less dangerous. Right. And maybe that'll offer some relief until we get a vaccine that that makes people not have to social distance so much that makes us not have to tank our economy to fight this virus but short of that it's it's a pretty grim picture yeah and so yes it's pretty grim i also think that it's important for people to understand what we're up against and when you hear health officials say 12 to 18 months it's misleading and I would rather know the true range, hoping that they're right, you know, secretly hoping that they're right, than to tell myself that actually this is only going to be a year or six months or a year and a half. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like, if 12 to 18 months is on the ambitious side, I would at least want to hear that when they're throwing out that estimate so I can set my expectations accordingly instead of I think they have done a real disservice to people by telling them it will be 12 to 18 months for a fact. And like, what happens in 18 months if that's not true? If the vaccine isn't here yet, I think not only are we going to deal with a a lot of people just being pissed off that they they were misled to, but like that has public health repercussions down the line in terms of like part of the going through a crisis like this is good communication from people you can trust. If you don't think you can trust the people communicating this kind of stuff to you anymore, that, that has repercussions beyond just the risk of a virus. Herman Lopez is a senior correspondent at Vox.com. Ariel Zimros, and this is Reset. 
We publish episodes three times a week on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at ADRS. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We'll be back on Sunday. Later, nerds. Later, nerds.